So, you know, you probably get questioned about forecasts and what's the outlook. And we look to our strategists as well and the economists to see what forecasts are. Most other forecasts people look at is the weather. And I really don't put much credence into like the seven day forecast on the seventh day. But I will kind of look at the 24 hour forecast uh, or the three day forecast because they might be off by 12 hours or maybe a day or whatever. At least it gives me a little bit of an indication of what's going to be coming up or what I can prepare for. So, um, yeah, here in Calgary, we're supposed to have some snow uh, starting uh, at the end of the weekend and into next week. So, um, yeah, the winter winter gloves and boots are going to get pulled out soon. Yeah, I saw in our forecast here, sunny, but pretty much zero as a high. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, I'm getting winter tires tomorrow, so uh, bring on the snow. So this is you being in prepar- in prepared for something that is, we know, eventually going to happen, whether you're one day in advance or one week in advance or a month mm-hmm. in advance before the real snow hits, um, you're, you're preparing. So mm-hmm. um, any other things that you're preparing for, uh, for like maybe more on, a, on the financial market side of things uh, for the remainder of the year or going into the new year? Oh, I thought you were going to ask if I'm preparing for Christmas. I was going to say, yes, I just spent $350 on Lego this morning. (laughs) Not for yourself, right? Uh, Some of it's for myself. The Star Wars stuff is for myself, and the other stuff's for my niece and nephew. Okay. So, yeah, you're getting ready. Hi, you're listening to the Just Some Musings podcast with Justin Lee and Marcus Muse. We are two advisors with CG Wealth Management in Alberta who finish off our weeks connecting over Zoom to discuss what's on our minds. What's on the agenda this week, Justin? What's on our minds is, is what's on some listeners' minds. And I think uh, the first of many, uh, a recurring uh, concept is that we're going to answer some questions that we have from some listeners in regards to the market and, uh, and uh, general outlook. All right. Any charts or links we refer to, as well as an archive of past podcasts, can be found on nuhs.ca slash podcast. Please enjoy our largely unedited and unfiltered discussion for the week. You know, we're, we're starting to get some feedback. You know, we get feedback and we get questions all the, you know, regularly uh, as well. But um, I'm starting to get some questions uh, from, from uh, listeners. And uh, I think we'll probably do. But why not we have a, like... Maybe our inaugural uh, Q&A or like uh, the questions uh, episode. First of all, let me just get one thing out of the way. I keep forgetting to mention this. We keep forgetting to mention this. And, you know, they say it on every podcast. Subscribe, uh, give us a rating on your podcast platform or whatever. Um, if if you don't mind taking a few minutes to do that, because that really does help a lot with the algos and whatnot. Uh, right now, I look on uh, Spotify. I think we have two positive reviews. One of them's mine. I know that. Uh, <laughs> so if you're on Spotify, give us the whatever it is on Spotify. If it's a rating or a thumbs up or whatever. And uh, I guess most are most of our other listeners are on Apple. And I think on Apple you give a, a rating, right? Five stars, five stars. or whatever. Five stars is there? sort of the, uh, yeah. the max, yeah. And then you can also give comments, obviously, as well. Yeah, comments are probably good too. I think comments also help with those algos. What I do notice, Spotify now on our podcast platform gives a, a graph of the impressions. So it shows how often does our podcast show up in a search for people mm. or just show up on their on their main page or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that number has been steadily but slowly going up. And I think there, uh, perhaps if we get some ratings, it might uh, might help improve the the reach there otherwise it looks like we have uh we have a couple of dozen uh pretty regular listeners to each episode from what it looks like i mean it's a good start i guess it is yeah we're uh we're five out of five five point zero out of five uh, on uh, from what i can see on uh, apple podcasts so on apple yeah we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll keep that momentum going as they say let's try yeah, yeah. so yeah so yeah let's 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 do some q a so um we welcome our listeners to get in touch with us in some way uh, that can be either via the podcast app. I believe on Spotify, you can um, probably send a message back. I think you can even record a message and send it to us uh, or go the old fashioned way and just email us. You know, you'll find um, both of our emails are on the podcast page, muhs.ca slash podcast. Justin, I think you're getting a website pretty soon too, right? Yeah, that is, uh, I'm in, in, the, in the works. In, in the works. Past the first couple steps, yes. Transed is working on it, right? So five years. <laughs> <laughs> um so, uh, so yeah, you can find our email contacts there or my contact page. Um, our, our, our email addresses, addresses are pretty simple. We don't get too much spam on there. So feel free to email us. We'll probably uh, respond to them. And ask us anything. Ask us, you know, your questions about the market. What would you ask your advisor? If you are our clients, what would you ask us? Um, or, or whatever you, you can think of regarding the markets or Canadian personal finance, 
stuff that we can answer. Because if you were asking the question, other people are probably asking it too. And that gives us good material, you know? So for now, I think, Justin, you have five questions, is it, from uh, that you've received from various clients over the last little while? Yeah. And uh, so we'll start off on, we'll start on the one that uh, is usually uh, comes up in most conversations in some form. Uh, it may not always be the right question to ask, but it's certainly top, you know, it, it, it go, delves into other things. But uh, we talked a little bit about the weather just briefly uh, and the snow forecast and you're getting winter tires. Um, so Marcus, when's the market going to recover? <laughs> That's a good question. I prepared for that one too. Even um, this market that we're in right now, I, the best explanation I heard about it was from a German podcast. I listened to a lot of podcasts, and I even listened to a few, a few German ones just to sort of, you know, I was I was raised it with uh, I was raised bilingually, so I I speak some broken German, and I'm just trying to improve it and get a little bit a little bit better knowledge, you know, with uh, financial terms and stuff like that. And uh, in this podcast, they said this is not a bull market. It's not a bear market. It's a groundhog market. A groundhog market in that, you know, this market keeps sort of peaking itself up out of the ground and then returning back into the ground. That's kind of what we've been seeing for the last two years. And that's another big thing. It's been two years now. Next month, it will be two years since the world market saw an all-time high. It's The market's been in drawdown ever since November two, uh, 2021. Um, some people say t- uh, January 2021, that was the U.S. markets when they hit their all-time high. But globally... The, the thing I'm looking at right now to sort of get a measure for the world markets is the ETF uh, VT. That's the uh, Vanguard's total world ETF. It invests about 60% in U.S. stocks, 40% the rest of the world. And it's a good approximation of what the world markets have done. And it's been in drawdown since November 2021. Uh, hit a low of minus 30-something uh, back in, uh, let's see here. Back in, uh, it was probably about a year ago, yeah, October 2022, it hit that negative 30% mark, and it's been in recovery since. So when will the markets recover? They are recovering. Of course, uh, since the last little while here, since summer, July, they've been in a bit of a drawdown again. So we hit a minus 30-something. We were as high as being just 9% below the highs, and now we're back to negative 16%. And what's really remarkable is just how long this has been as as a recovery period. Think back to the coronavirus crash. And the markets then, they crashed 35%. And then by August, they were back to all-time highs. So we, we almost didn't even have time to worry about it. Yeah. This time, though, it's taking so long. And that is what's really, uh, it's really sort of dragging down people's uh, optimism, really, when it comes to, you know, there's a, are going. I think there's a certain amount of fatigue, for sure, that has come into play. Fatigue, exactly. Uh, and and uh, I suppose that the idea is that you'd like to get out of that funk and um you know maybe there's a couple of green shoots or some indicators you know whether leading or lagging that could portend uh, uh uh what you you know reaching back or the opportunity that uh, a better likelihood of, of getting back up to that high water mark uh, of uh, fall you know 2021 but uh it's still um it still seems pretty dicey right you know um you know the inflation numbers keep changing uh they some of them seem to be improving in the united states the jobless rates it still seems to be quite low and, and, and so maybe higher for longer, as they say, higher interest rates for longer, not necessarily cut, might be all that the market really wants to, they just don't want any more increases. But um, yeah, there's no, obviously no clear answer, right? The easiest answer is to get the snow tires. <laughs> yeah, the markets want cuts. That's what will really, that's what will probably push the markets up is if there's good news or if there's news out there that has the markets believing there will be cuts pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Right now, they're kind of expecting cuts sometime in 2024 in interest rates. But if they don't come, if those cuts don't come, what that really means is the economy is too strong. Uh, that's that's really the thing that's that's been driving inflation is too much consumer demand. Um, it hasn't been so much uh, supply side issues as it was in the early pandemic time. But um they worry about when, when too low of an unemployment number comes out, uh, it means empl- labor costs will probably go up, so will continue to go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that worries the markets and has them usually going down when there's good economic news. But if we do have higher for longer, it just means the economy is that strong. If the economy isn't strong, it will compel the central banks to cut rates. And they have a long ways to cut. They have, we're in much better, a much better situation than we were going into the coronavirus crash. If you remember that, I think interest rates were at maybe 2% and they got cut down to zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time, if something bad happens and something always will happen, some kind of economic slowdown, recession, whatever, maybe another pandemic, who knows, um, they have five percentage points to cut. 
that's a lot of runway. Yes. And every time they cut, it helps sort of stimulate the economy and the, and the markets get happy again. And for the time being, though, again, if, if it stays higher for longer, it just means that the markets are doing good, or sorry, the economy's doing good, mm-hmm. and probably corporate earnings will continue to be strong, and we'll see where we go from there. I would also just want to say, like, a long protracted recovery like this, two years now, it's not unusual. It's the, 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 the news media likes to make it unusual. Anytime there's volatility in the market, it's like this is something new we've never seen before, which is, oh. yes, like it's, we've seen it lots, lots of times. Um, what we're seeing right now is not unlike what we saw 2015, 2016, where we went two years from mid-2015 to mid-2017 for the markets to go back to all-time highs. Mm. It wasn't as big of a drop back then, but, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but still, that was... Uh, so sometime in 2024? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's the thing. Everyone wants some kind of promise. Like, when, when, when are things going to get better? And uh, Tell me. Tell me. I know, I've, been, I've, been investing, I've been investing for two years, and I've gone nowhere. I've, I've seen no progress whatsoever. Uh, you know, and that's yes. you know, the, the, the worst thing about it is right uh, now it's, the, it's bad for people who are aggressive with their investments, yeah. and they're entirely in stocks, yeah. as well as those people who, who you know, did the, the rational, prudent thing and have a balanced portfolio. That 40% or so they have in bonds is also down. Mm-hmm. So it's been absolutely terrible for everyone for the last two years. But this is not unusual. It's not something that anyone can predict. It's not something that we have to explain. It is simply the course of the markets. Mm. That it is something the markets have done for them for the hundreds of years that they've been doing their thing. I, I think about the only thing. I think the only thing that we can probably expect is that it'll, there'll be another period like this sometime in the future. Again, don't know when, don't know how, yeah. but we're probably going to have something like this again in the, you know, call it within a decade, right? And even within a decade, we, one of the things you want to do is kind of learn from how we reacted, how we behaved, how we felt, mm-hmm. right? You know, write these mm-hmm. things down, right? You write it down, I write it down, you know, listeners or clients can write it down so that we can kind of, or just have that memory, don't forget 2021 to 2023, so that invariably when it does happen again, we, we, we knew how we, we, we recall how we reacted this time around, and then, you know, either remember that it passes or how we react and how we learn from that or make an adjustment to that behavior. behavior so. Yeah, if the markets continue what they've been doing for the many, many years, at some point in the future, there will be new all-time highs. Yep. And then some point after that, there will again be a big, massive drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be a drop of at least 20% before the end of the 2020s. And they, there might be another drop of much more than that, possibly before the, the end of the 2020s or, mm-hmm. or maybe the decade after that. If you're investing for the long term, you're going to see it and you just have to be uh, accepting that it's normal. The price of admission, as some would say, right? It is the price of admission for that higher rate of return that, mm-hmm. um, that the markets generally give you. On that topic, that kind of might bleed into the other one of the yeah. other questions you had so, about GICs. Yeah, so Marcus, question number two. Why don't I just park my money right now into a GIC rate and, and have full security with that, with that number? And in fact, you know, I, I went to my bank and I found that there's a 10-year GIC. And they're offering me X percent. Why don't I just do that? That is news to me too. I found that I looked online. I found a ten-year GIC offered by an online alternative bank yeah. right now, four and a half percent. And uh, and yeah, interest rates are are awesome right now. They're they're the highest they've been in my fifteen years doing this. Um, I probably go back to when I when I started with in banking at first in a call center. Mm-hmm. That was when rates. The last time we saw rates in the fours, and then they declined. We never saw rates like that again for a while. Um, in the early mid 2000s, mid 2000s, the rates are awesome. And the thing too, and the, the real question, I'm going to sort of play devil's advocate here for a while, you know, in favor of GICs. But the uh, the other big question is, in our financial planning, we're us- usually using pretty conservative expected return rates, where for a moderately risky, moderate growth portfolio, we're using an expected return of five point something percent, along with uh, a bunch of risk that comes with it, mm-hmm. sort of volatility, standard mm-hmm. deviation. Mm-hmm. Well, you can get a GIC right now, and I look today, and these rates, of course, are changing every day, so this is not a, a promise of what's available the day you might inquire. But right now, a one-year GIC is available on our platform at 5.65% from a, a local uh, Edmonton-based bank, actually. I won't name any names because they might, they might drop that offer. <laughs> but uh, 5.65% is pretty, pretty good. Um, and you can you can meet your financial planning goals with that type of rate if you always get that type of rate, and that's the that's the thing. Mm-hmm. A ten year at four and a half ish percent, I think, was what I saw online. Uh, they were doing at this um, online bank. They do six, seven, ten year at four and a half percent. Two questions to that: you know, why would you take four and a half percent for that long a period of time when you can get five point six for two years? 
um, because rates will probably go down at some point and you can lock in a rate that might sound unfathomably high uh, five years from now if, if rates go down again. But yeah, why not? I mean, was that, was, was that answer your question, Justin? Yeah, you should buy GICs. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Done for the year. No, I think we I think we need to expand on that, but I just want to give you a chance to talk. Yeah, no, I yeah, no. Uh, I would I would sort of you know agree with one with the with the point that rates are high. They're they are high for a reason. They're probably not gonna be this high in the you know in the near future or in the future, you know, in the next year or two. You know, it's it's sort of like the other side of the coin when I, I hear people talking about their this impending mortgage renewal that they're gonna have to think about and deal with yeah. or it's, it's already it's a year away maybe and they're already like what are we going to do what are we going to do all right we're going from two and a half to like maybe five plus right like it's going to double well, what are we going to do so um that is the other side of the coin and and so these rates while you know we're talking about the last couple of years right irrespective of whether you're invested in equities or fixed income uh, or you know almost everything in between that it went down right the correlation was all sort of getting close to one and this is something that was you know people didn't understand you know stocks go up bonds go down stocks go down bonds go up right and, and so that's sort of the general rule of thumb and we didn't really experience that and the safety the areas of safety uh, weren't necessarily safe at all and we saw uh, values go down so in in that environment of course people are going to look and see wow i can lock in at 5.65 or what or what have you um, I saw, you know, with the right amount of amount of money, um, over six percent for one year GICs. Uh, even now, this mm-hmm. week, um, <clears throat> you need that's look, through us, right? Yeah, you need more, but uh, you need a larger deposit because the deposit, you know, mm-hmm. the, but in essence, they're there. And so, why wouldn't I just lock that in for a year? And in the short term, perhaps that might make sense for one year, you know, uh, maybe a two year. But to stretch it out to ten years, like just think about ten years. The last ten years of innovation. The last ten years of the. You know, go back ten years ago. Go tell me what the what the composite index was of, of any of them, whether it was Canada, whether it was the S and P, whether it was MSCI World, um, markedly lower than what they are today. And so you're trading in the uh, the secure. You're getting security of a rate and for a certain amount of time, and uh, for for a number that may or may not uh, beat inflation over the long term, or be not you know real rates after inflation. And the opportunity cost of the equity markets is probably going to be much higher than what you may expect. Four and a half percent might beat inflation on on paper, but then after tax, that's uh, you know take yeah. at least a third off that. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at historical numbers, what I'm looking at right now is every ten year time period for the um, for the U.S. total market. Rolling you know, ten. Any time. Any ten, ten year years. Frame, any ten year number. Not the last ten years, but every. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. There were periods of time when it did less than four and a half percent, but that was pretty seldom. Mm-hmm. I mean, 2000 to 2009 was one of those periods of time when the markets were down actually over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Going back to the 1930s, they were down. And there were periods of times like 1966 to 1975 where they were, when they were down, to, where, they, where they compounded 2.7%. Okay. But over the vast, vast period of, of history, that rate of return was quite a bit higher than four and a half percent. Usually range from on the low end in the mid single digits to often as high as high double or high teens, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's that opportunity cost. The one thing I really worry about, and I've seen this so much over those same 15 years that I talked about. So I, I go back to way at the beginning, 2005-ish, 2006. Rates were still pretty good. That was a time when the markets were kind of people were not so crazy about the markets because we had the tech bubble bursting, and mm-hmm. then of course they were about to crash again in 2007, 2008. But People then were gung-ho about putting money into GICs at four point something percent. And they locked them in for five years usually, had that money locked in. And then when that money came due after the great financial crisis, when when the stock market started to rally, that was when we at the bank were shifting a lot of people from GICs into mutual funds again. Mm-hmm. And at the, in the bank world, it's it's a constant back and forth. The, they're, they're constantly moving people from mutual funds, not on purpose, but it's because people kind of feel they go into mutual funds, they have a bad experience, the markets go down, then they want GICs, they want that safety. And right now they look wonderful because you're, you're looking at the last couple of years, um, negative last year, so-so this year, um, GICs look wonderful and people are shifting into GICs. And then eventually those GICs will come due and what happens is when they come due, the renewal rate will be crap. It'll be 2% again, probably. 
That's again why that 10 year might make sense for some people. If you're low risk, you might want to sacrifice getting five and a half now and get four and a half for a much longer period of time. Mm -hmm. But whatever rate you choose or whatever term you choose, the GIC comes due at some point and you have to renew it. And you're going to look at the rates and you're going to say 2%. That's, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. uh, at that point, the, the past couple of years of the markets will probably look good and you'll want to go into mutual funds again. And that is a sure way to erode your capital. Constantly, you'll constantly be going into the markets after they've done well, when they look attractive, mm -hmm. when GICs don't look attractive, and then going out of them or avoiding them when they are probably down a bit, which is exactly when they are the most attractive, not the least attractive, they're the most attractive when markets are down. Um, and that usually coincides with times when GIC rates happen to be stronger. So I hate seeing that, people going back and forth, back and forth. Mm -hmm. GICs can be part of a portfolio, they do serve a function, but they should not be a choice of now I'm gonna go GICs, now I'm gonna go mutual funds. That's how you destroy your capital. Rant over. That was good. <laughs> I, I'll just make the one, a last comment and say that there's uh, almost nothing else in life I think that people will lock in and commit to for 10 years, whether it's a car loan, a mortgage, a relationship, what have you, right? It's just like 10 years is, is a decade. Yeah, I've been here at Canaccord for 10 years. It's a long time. Well, I mean, you know, open-ended, right? Like, it's fantastic. It's been, yeah. a great, it's been a great run, right? But the thing is, is like, for a lot of other things, like we don't, we don't conceptually in Canada have 10-year mortgages necessarily. We're all used to five-year mortgages, right? No. We have other things. Like yep. There's just... 10 years is, a, is it's just a very long time for things to change, uh, for things to grow. And, and, and I go to your, your comment about the rolling 10 and how vast majority of the time um, it, it had outperformed. There were odd periods here and there, of course. But if you take about any, any you know, discrete 10 year time frame over the last century, uh, those are pretty good batting odds. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take those. So um, here's another question for you. Um, so there's been, you know, economy is relatively good, but you know, there's people that change jobs, right? And, and or things happen, uh, or something maybe they just acquire uh, through inheritance or some form uh, a certain amount of money. And so a question that I received recently was that, well, I have a let's just call it a hundred thousand dollars. Why don't I just take all that money and invest it into something a dividend payer like a, you know, a BCE or a pipeline company like a TCE? all these acronyms right or even a bank right and these guys never cut their dividends right and right now because of the interest rate situation they're all yielding now four five six seven eight right there's telecom companies now and pipeline companies that are yielding close to eight percent why not just throw it all in there and, and lock it up and i'm good to go for the next decade why would i not do that marcus we want to start a conversation on dividends. <laughs> how much time you got how much time you got? uh you know <laughs> let, let's keep this about five minutes but yeah um, at a high level you can under, understand that, uh, you know, for a lot of dividend investors, this might be a good opportunity, right? But what is the dividend yield on BCE? Yeah, it's probably right close, to, close to eight percent. Look it up. Seven and a half. Eight percent. Wow. Yeah. Telus is over seven percent. Um, TCE, Enbridge are all over seven. I think the Royal Bank is probably four and a half right now, if I remember correctly. But Scotia Bank and CIBC are probably yielding six point nine, six point eight, almost seven percent as well. So these are yields that are, uh, I would say, unheard of, but have not been seen for these traditional blue chip telecom, um, blue chip dividend payers in, in a very, very long time. Okay, so BCE over the last twelve months is down thirteen and a half percent. From its high water mark this year, it's probably down twenty. What does the yield matter? Yeah, it is probably down twenty percent. What does the yield matter? But I'm getting four and a half percent, Marcus. <laughs> Over the last Did I forget? Years. Did you just tell me that it's down 13%, but I was getting 4.5%, so I'm still net negative? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> well, over the last three years, it's down 12% total. Okay, so then um, with my dividends at the time, might have been like, you know, 2 3% for now I'm getting. So you're saying I'm even now after three years? I'm owning the largest company in Canada and I'm, I'm just flat. If you incorporate the dividends, you're at a gross, a total gross return of 4.89%. That's oh. with dividends, and that's over, that's over three years. So uncompound that you're looking at one point something percent annually so i mean okay there's, there's a couple things to play here one is a dividend yield is meaningless in terms of your return one that's it's it's a it's an amount of money the stock is spitting out the company's spitting out mm -hmm. in terms of what they're returning to shareholders mm -hmm. but your return is a, is a combination of what the price does and and what you collect in dividends mm -hmm. and what the what the company's paying you in dividends this is the big thing that people don't understand and i can go on a big rant on this one but uh, i'm limiting you to three minutes now <laughs> <laughs> three minutes the dividend is not it's not free money that just appeared out of nowhere the, the dividend is money off the off the company's balance sheet that's part of its book value yeah. that comes off the balance sheet and gets put into your pocket 
So all else being equal, forgetting about the variable variability of the markets, the fluctuations and all that, the company, if it pays a 8% dividend, or say that's 2% in a quarter, the quarter that it pays that dividend, its, its book value goes down by 2%. So it's nothing's gained, it's just a little piece of the company has been paid out to you. A friend of mine online, Aaron Hector, did a really good explanation of this using fruit. Uh, he is a pe- an apple, apple and showed how I saw the app, yes. I called the- an apples, not the company, an apple, <laughs> a green apple, <laughs> granny, a granny Smith, Smith apple, apple. Yes, where the what you're actually getting when you have a, a dividend stock is they're slicing a piece of the apple off of you, giving it to you. And what's worse, there's a little bit of tax coming off too on that. So that's one thing that's wrong with the whole thinking of I'm going to put this money into dividend paying, blah blah blah. The other thing really is single stock concentration. Why would you want to own one stock, two stocks, three stocks, whatever, 10 stocks that are all in three different industries, pipelines, telecoms, and, and banks? That's not a diversified portfolio, and that's going to lead to more pain and suffering in, mm-hmm. the, in the long term, too. Mm-hmm. Um, that, could, that we can go on for another 10 minutes, 15 minutes, too, talking about the studies that show that the total market return, this beautiful return that we've seen in the markets over the very long term, some of those numbers I quoted earlier, it's, I think it's about 9.9% annually for U.S. stocks from 1926 to 2022. Um, that's on the um, that that number is pretty much quoted everywhere. Call it nine to ten percent. That return comes from owning absolutely everything, the winners and the losers. And what it turns out is that of the winners, the ones that contribute the most to that return over that very long period of time, it's only about four percent of stocks that contribute the lion's share of that return that gets you from having a, a return that's equal to T-bills mm-hmm. to having a return of 9 10% or whatever. Yeah. It's 4% of all the stocks that ever existed over the 90-something years. This is the study. It was done years ago. But, um, Binder. It's a small It's a small number. Best and Binder, Hendrick Best and Binder, yeah. I've, I've quoted in, in blog posts before. Everyone always brings it up. But the number, I mean, I mean there's other studies that have been done. It's a small number. When you own the stock market, you own a lot of bad companies and good companies, and you never know what are going to be the good companies. You never know that a company that in the 1930s or 40s was had, had, had a business of, of selling meat slicers and, and, and scales for, for delis uh, would become one of the biggest contributors, and that company was IBM. That was um, one of the biggest contributors of the growth of the markets in, you know, through the 1960s, 70s, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you wouldn't know that if you bought it in 1980 when it was the biggest company in the world, that it would basically do nothing for you for the decades after that and would actually be a massive underperformer. You just never know. You have to own everything. Yeah. One, Anyways, okay. One thing I'll add to that is uh, a total shareholder return. The concept of total, total shareholder mm-hmm. return, where it incorporates uh, not just dividends or capital gains, uh, but the combination thereof and, 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 and some additional things I'll talk about. So what you want to see is that you want to see if the company is, is spitting out a dividend, well, how much is it? Of course, does it match what you're what you're requiring, what your needs are? But on top of that, like, why are they giving it back to me? Do they have nothing better to, to reinvest? Is their business not good enough that they they don't they can't just take that cash themselves and then compound it compound it at a, at a higher rate than what might be uh, what you and I might do individually, for example, right? Um, mm-hmm. There are many ways to uh, be enriched through uh, the equity markets. Um, certain companies will factor more. Again, this is why you have sort of the what they call yeah the what was once called the the uh, orphans and widows, right? Anti holdings. You have the blue chip dividend mm-hmm. payers. You have the growth oriented names. You have companies that do a combination thereof, right? Um, and and companies actually like people evolve over time. Where at some point, um, you know, they may be high growth, no dividend, but over time they slowly mature and realize that you know what, we're generating a lot of extra excess cash, and uh, we are fully, you know, at capacity of what we can do right now, and we're just going to give some back. And then it gets to a point where you know we're going to give a lot more back. Right. And, and, and so mm-hmm. there's things to think about as well. To your point, when you buy the entire market, invest the entire market, you're going to get a piece of everything. Right. And you're going to get the winners, you're going to get the losers. But overall, the winners will generally, um, you know, the upside is unlimited, as I say, whereas the losers, the downside, as long as you're not borrowing a margin, is 100%. It's zero. Right. You get down and, to zero. Worst case. And a lot of those companies will pay dividends. And that's a nice thing. It's a nice side effect. Yeah. I always say dividends are a happy side effect of investing, it's not something to be seeking out. Um, with that said, I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of correlation causation at, at stake here too when it comes to dividends because there, there is the argument that uh, dividend stocks outperform non-dividend stocks, dividend growers outperform non-dividend growers. That is true to an extent, but it is not the dividends themselves that lead to that um, outperformance. It's mm-hmm. rather actually, it's got to do with uh, sort of conservative corporate policy. 
Um, and this is mm. kind of getting into some uh, f French Fama five-factor stuff that I don't want to delve too deeply into because I'll probably uh, mess things up in terms of, uh, <laughs> of, of the facts and so forth. But one of the factors is the investment factor, and that is historically it's been shown that companies that have, that have a conservative as, a, as opposed to an aggressive investment factor, that is how they invest in themselves, reinvest in themselves, have historically outperformed by some small margin. That is a company that is more likely to um, to spend all its profits and to even borrow more money and spend it on growth and expansion underperforms long term versus a company that is more conservative, holds back those retained earnings mm -hmm. and does, as you say, shareholder yield, either dividends or buybacks. Uh, companies that set high standards for what they invest in, they'll, they'll set a, a high weighted average cost of capital within their, in their structure so that they're not going to they're not going to invest in foolish endeavors that might not might not make the money. They're going to be more more particular, mm -hmm. I guess, in what they do. It Those is. are successful companies, and they become dividend companies more often than not. And that's why dividend companies, to that to that extent, do tend to do well. It's kind of like it's a symptom in some senses, or, or it's a representation of. It's a symptom, yeah. And not a result, not a result, right? It's it's actually not the end. I'd be cautious though about seeking out companies that have high dividends, and that's that gets back to the original question: is a lot of Canadians, especially retirees, because they want that income stream, they buy in particular telcos, mm -hmm. um, which operate a, a practically no growth industry that is ripe for disruption. That right now has some sort of uh, moats, as you can say, or um, it, it's a bit of an oligopoly, right? It's three totally things now. Yep. Yeah. So, but just wait. Just wait till you see what Starlink's going to do um, in terms of disrupting that oligopoly. Mm. Um, As an example, unless the government steps in and stops them, yeah. for example. Like, let's say Starlink comes along and says we're just going to offer everybody internet, self, uh, cell phone service, television mm -hmm. um, from our satellites, mm -hmm. and there's nothing that these terrestrial telcos, these classic telcos, can do about it, unless the government steps in and stops Elon. That's one thing. And then the other thing, that everyone wants to buy the banks because the banks have always grown in profits mm -hmm. for many, many years and they, they've always paid their dividends. But again, five or six company oligopoly, right for disruption, a lot of financial technology that can disrupt that. And there's no reason to believe all the growth they had in the last 20 years is going to repeat over the next 20 years because where's that going to come from? Are we going to pay 100 bucks a month for uh, checking account fees or whatever? Um, is that your, again, is that don't, your forecast? don't yeah. seek, <laughs> don't seek those companies because they have high dividends. Uh -huh. You got to spend if you're going to buy individual stocks, you got to spend a little bit more time analyzing these companies. And if yes. they pay a nice dividend, and that's a solid and sustainable dividend with a history of growth. That's great. That's mm -hmm. a nice, nice extra check mark on your on your scorecard if you're analyzing individual stocks. Mm -hmm. Again, my way of doing things is to not do that individual stock stuff and just own everything because I don't I don't know if. You know, you can do all the analysis in the world, and that stock can uh, can go to can go to crap, and then you never know what's going to be the next big uh, the next big company that contributes to the markets. So maybe I'll go into the next question then, and because I do like uh, myself individual uh, sectors uh, stocks, uh, some overweights in, in particular areas, um, and and so in general, whether you're thinking about it, you know specifically to a sector, maybe to a geography, uh, or even to, you know, individual name, we won't talk about maybe necessarily individual names, but a question I sometimes get, and especially during a prolonged area of fatigue, is that something must be working right now, right? What's out there? Or in, in essence, Justin, Marcus, where do you see growth opportunities right now? Where do you see areas of, poten of potential performance? Where are those green shoots, as yeah, you say? where are the green shoots? We've got to do some green shoots somewhere. It's five o'clock somewhere. It's springtime somewhere. Whatever analogy you want to use, something, something's got to be working, right? So, you know, where are the growth opportunities? So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I like when I look at things, uh, secular growth is a, is a term that's often used uh, and, and whether, you know, correctly or incorrectly. But one way I would look at it is that irrespective of the business cycle or the economic cycle, are there areas where you see pronounced spending? or growth opportunities, or trends are undeniable, so that having that, for example, um, emerging market population, it is undeniable that the population growth in the emerging market, uh, emerging uh, world is much greater than uh, the developed world. And it is also like, undeniable that the, uh, to go along with that, the uh, consumer spending and capital spending of those economies and of those individuals will increase over time, right? People want to stop eating beans and rice, forget the health benefits of it, right? And mm -hmm. then they want to go get some, you know, steak, bacon, whatever. Um, then afterwards, maybe then they're, you know, it goes from just water, then I want to buy that Coca-Cola that I always want. And they go from the Coca-Cola and it's like, oh, all of a sudden, guess what? 
I want to buy that premium liquor from the cheap beer, right? So on and so forth. So I think there's trends like that that are, are hard to disagree against and positioning uh, one's portfolio or one's investments to take advantage of some of the things I think is um, is, is worth the, at least if anything, the mental exercise, right? And of the emerging markets, right? For example, for emerging markets, right? One other area for myself that I see, and you look at, you can look at it in terms of the uh, capital spend or what you know companies looking to cut down if they need to cut down spending, um, or some of these cases you hear more and more in the news, uh, or even more of the cases you don't hear in the news, is things like uh, online security, right? We are getting online more and more often. We are using our, our mobile uh, devices far more. We are income. Most of our things are information. We're putting up on the cloud, right? Uh, mm -hmm. For better or for worse, right? You know, our, our passwords, our email, it's our personal details. We're getting hacked more often exactly. too. Like we're getting exactly. hacked more often. I just uh, heard a story from a good friend of mine who just last weekend, she had everything hacked and her Facebook was hacked. Her, yeah. I think her bank account and made they made her life hell. And yeah. I mean, it's it's becoming much more important. I mean, when we have to have better practices when it comes to of our course, own uh, behavior and all that. Don't, don't click on that phishing email, of course, for example. But then in general, you, you make a good point yeah. because um, at that IIFP conference I was at a few weeks ago here in Edmonton, um, there was one company that was presenting there was presenting to an audience largely of independent financial planners who run their own businesses, mm -hmm. um, offering cyber basically a cybersecurity suite, um, and and they offer a free tutorial or something on, mm -hmm. on, on sort of things to think about. We see it on the corporate side, all, all our corporations, all the big corporations in Canada and mid-sized ones like us are getting really, really big on cybersecurity. And um, there is a certain energy company here in Calgary that was shut down for a month, right? At least a month. They had to replace yeah. every single laptop, right? In that organization. Yep. Everyone knows, which, wow. most people should know which company that I love is near and dear to me, right? <laughs> which one <laughs> this one is, but and this this is high profile stuff, and someone looks stupid. They got egg, egg on their face, this, like the the a, person at at yeah. Grant McEwen University here a few years ago. Who, yeah. uh, no, they just sent money to us to a fraudster because they said they were basically part of the people doing the expansion. Ah, uh, yes, yes. But there's Bad so invoices. much of this going on, yes. and yeah, we we all have to be. So what you're getting at in terms of an investment um, theme there is, yeah, cybersecurity has been a theme for a long time. But I think what we are seeing more is many small businesses that are having to really up their cybersecurity game to the same level as the corporations as well. I think average individuals are, you know, they're going to have to probably spend some money. I spend a subscription fee to Norton so that I've got security on all my devices and VPNs and, uh, and they check my date on the dark web. Yep. Um, I think more and more of us are going to be doing that kind of stuff and spending the money on it. And that, yeah. that there's, there's potential there. So that's a theme that I like in terms of growth, the secular growth, as I say, irrespective of the business cycle. And again, for corporations or enterprises, it's probably one of the last things you're going to cut spending on. You may not do the new uh, workflow yeah. process software. You might not get like the new HR package, right? But if you, that's the last thing that's going to get cut is the cybersecurity. You're not going to cut your cybersecurity yeah. spending. Otherwise, you have a lot of questions to get answer to. Should you oh. actually get hacked or something happen? So that's another quick one. And then another one, for example, and this is one I've talked a lot about with clients and individuals, is is the um, uh, with increasing wealth, increasing caloric intake, uh, more sedentary lifestyles, like we're, we're all experiencing this in general for in some form or another, is that um, unfortunately a signal of, uh, of economic wealth or, or just general is like is obesity. And that's one thing that I think is irrespective of, of the economic cycle as well. Um, cheaper foods, in fact, right? you, you can argue and say that when people don't have as much to spend, they're going to buy the, the, the crappier high calorie intake sort of uh, uh, food out there, right? And it's not easy. Fast food. Yeah. And so you know, 40%, I believe, or approximately, it's not exaggerated, like it's there, of the, of the American population. And I would imagine Canada is not that far off behind, right? So call it like double digits for sure is considered obese, right? Um, as company, as countries, you know, uh, move into uh, more spending, you know what, again, those healthy rice and beans things that I was just talking about earlier, right? No, we're going to hamburgers. We're going to buy that McDonald's. We're going to buy that fried chicken. We're going to buy more high processed, more sugar, more sort of things. And we've seen that. We've seen that in the Western developed world. Um, it's probably, it continues to become, uh, it's, it's endemic, as they say. Uh, the rest mm -hmm. of the world is starting to see that. And and so that, um, don't uh, don't never doubt the American eater, as they say. And, and, and solutions are coming into play to help address that. Um, have been in incredibly popular uh, in the last year through social media, um, through the investment community. They're actually now looking at companies not being negatively affected against um, 
you know, primarily the, you know, these obesity drugs, right, that you see in commercials. And guarantee you, once another one gets uh, approved in, in the near term, you're going to see even more of these uh, billboards and commercials coming up for the, uh, uh, for the other drug. But um, suffice yeah. to say, again, another secular growth theme that is kind of there. And, you know, it has worked in the, in, in the last year or two. Uh, and foreseeable future, this is maybe an area of, of consideration. So there's a couple areas that off the top of my head, cybersecurity, obesity, um, emerging market uh, growth, um, that I think will continue to be growth uh, themes for the long term, uh, in the short term, near term, long term, um, irrespective of what the economic or business cycle is locally. Little areas. Of, I think of, I know which I, th I think I know which company you have in mind right now that says in in the news or in the media. Oh, it, the, it's uh, everywhere. You watch a hockey game, the commercials are there, right? And again, see it on the boards. Yeah. And then once the other competing company uh, comes out approved with their obesity drug, uh, you're going to see those commercials as well. In fact, I will say the largest com health company in, in the in the United States now is a pharmaceutical company uh, with one of those drugs, and the largest company by market cap in all of Europe is now. Uh, one of those obesity drug manufacturers, right? And so these are, they've already built up, you know, there's expectations, but um, I think I mm -hmm. saw 1%, 1.5% of the US population is actually on one of these uh, obesity drugs. But mm -hmm. I told you 40% of the population is actually obese, right? So, you know, 1.5% to 40%, you know, even if it gets to three or five, I don't even want to think about 10%, right? Because there's, um, you know, some people are going to stop after six months. Some people, you know, these are things that mm -hmm. you're going to probably mm -hmm. have to use for the rest of your life. And you have to also change your lifestyle. Let's let's not forget all this. These are solutions to help you change your health and your lifestyle. Um, but yep, yep. It, it may be still early. I hear, and I hear for for a lot of people, it's working pretty well. I mean, I've, I've heard there's side effects and stuff yeah. too to worry about. But any any let, yeah. let's anything has. has let's let's look at let's look at the. I think we I think we're okay to name the company Novo Nordisk. Novo Nordisk got <laughs> it. Denmark just... and Eli Lilly of the United States. Those are the two companies in particular. Yeah, Novo Nordisk is now a $440 billion company. Um, now, now, of course, in talking about this stock, I, I just want to sort of put the caveat out there. It's not a recommendation or anything. This is the point I want to make, actually. Yeah, so kind of going a bit counter. I mean, yeah. I get that all, and that's, that's a good trend and all that. And the thing, though, that people have to watch out for when it comes to looking for where are the growth opportunities. Yes, 100%, there's growth opportunities in especially the developing world getting more obese from eating more of this the same mm -hmm. type of food we eat there's there's a lot of potential i mean for diabetes drugs and, and ozempic now is really broken into or novo nordisk with the ozempic drug is mm -hmm. really broken into uh, uh basically everybody it's no longer just for people with diabetes it's you want to lose some weight go get some ozempic yeah not an advertisement just kind yeah. of parodying <laughs> advertisements so but the thing is though when it comes to searching for those opportunities for growth is how much of that expectation of growth is already built, built into in. the price? This is, this is a very good and, question. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. This is why I'm a value investor mainly, and this mm -hmm. is why I tilt towards value, because in value stocks, value stocks long-term have outperformed growth stocks over the very long term, and that seems kind of counterintuitive. A growth stock should grow more, right? These are more growthy companies as opposed to mm -hmm. boring old value companies. But the thing is, most of the time when you're buying a growth stock, you're buying a stock that already has a lot of expectation for growth and is already a, at a high price. So let's look at Novo Nordisk as an example. In 2019, I'm just going pre-pandemic. Say sometime in 2019, the stock price was 20-something dollars. And this is a company I know has been, um, it, it, it's been pretty well invested in, in in a lot of global equity funds. I know Capital Group was always really big on them. They were usually one of the top holdings over the years. Uh, so 20-something dollars in 2019. And at that time, its market cap was... I'm using Y charts for all this, so thank you for the data. Um, so it was in the hundred something billion dollar range was the market cap. American, yeah. They traded. Yep, yeah, and this is the this is all U.S. dollars here. Um, their uh, price to book value at that time was about fifteen, so kind of high. The average uh, stock in the U.S. is about three times book value. I think pharmaceutical stocks typically trade much higher though, uh, because they they have a lot of IP, which is not considered part of that book value. Mm -hmm. um, pr Price earnings ratio 2019, it was below 20. It was at about 20 times earnings. And that's a good price earnings ratio for a company that has some growth potential. And that's most of the pharmaceutical industry seems to trade around that. And it's, range. Not, it's not far from so, the, the market average as well. Yeah, yeah. So today, that market cap has gone from 100 something billion to 400 something billion. Mm -hmm. Its uh, price book ratio has gone, and in none of these valuation metrics are the be all end all. I'm just using a couple. Yeah. 
there's a lot of a lot of people think these you know price book is nonsense or whatever when it mm -hmm. comes to pharmaceutical. But just just to c compare the past to the present, so that price book value has gone from 15 times something to to 33. So it's it's more than doubled in terms of how it relates to the underlying value the underlying assets of the company. And its price earnings, which is probably a little more relevant for a uh, for a pharmaceutical, because that sort of values it relative to its earnings, uh, from twenty something to forty six. So every valuation metric has doubled. Its earnings have gone up a lot over that time period, but how much growth potential growth is already built into the price? So That's right. again, it's just That's a warning. Right. You know, if you see this is a company, the the trend is great. The, um, the sort of the expectation, the demographic expectations, and whatever they make sense, but everyone else is thinking the same thing and they're all in that stock too. Mm -hmm. This is not an unheard of company. Yep. And I mean, I could go look at Eli Lilly too, but maybe Eli Lilly no, is a better opportunity. No, it's again, not good. Well, I mean, uh, different diversified portfolios and whatnot, but um, what I, yeah. and, and it's, it's a very valid point, Marcus. Um, it, it comes to my, it reminds me of a phrase that Bill Gates, I think, uh, was, is a tribute to Bill Gates. And, and, and it goes to the point where I'm paraphrasing that um, people will overestimate the impact of uh, a technological change in the short term but they will yeah. underestimate the impact of that technological technological change in the long term. So some of these things, like you know, we'll go back to like you know the um, Amazon, the, the tech crash. You know, yeah, oh yeah. I'm just he just sells books. He just sells books online, right? And then, yeah, they overestimated. It went down ninety percent, and then uh, and then of course it's much much higher today than it was back higher. then. All those telecom pipeline, all, you know, all the fiber optic that was laid around the world um, mm -hmm. by WorldCom and whomever to say that yeah, the internet age is here. Um, it was arriving, um, but they overdid it, and then things went bust. And then a decade or two later, those, those foundational pipelines around the world were, were the basis of basically what the internet is today, right? And so, yeah, um, you know, throw whatever theme, even AI over the last year, that's the, you know, the, the, the theme of the year in a lot of ways, right? Uh, you know, Bitcoin in some form, you know, previously, there's always something that comes up, right? And then you're right, there's hype, there's excitement, there's something, oh, something's working, there's a momentum trend following in some senses too, right? But um, over over the course of time, you, you will see some of these things sort of settle out. Sometimes they may, you know, it was arguable that Amazon at one time became a value stock itself, right? And uh, and, and so, you know, Amazon, Apple, and so on and so forth. But um, over the long term, you, you um, the impact I think is yet to be seen. So uh, you're right. Don't get overhyped. Don't get too excited about any of these you know high growth opportunities in the near term. But um, over the long term, see if you we can try to speculate or try to look at some longer term projections and say like what could be the potential impact. Uh, could I have the even the mental or the intestinal fortitude to hold on to something for that full decade or not? Right. Um, and if it's only a six month old or one year old. Uh, then maybe we we refine that question a, a lot tighter, make that decision much more uh, stringently, right? So very valid point there. Yeah, that's a case. That's a case with every stock. Yeah. Every stock's owned by many, many different people, and everyone's got a different objective, that's different right. uh, hold period, and and yeah. And if if your objective is to hold it for six months, I mean, you can look at this chart of uh, of Novo Nordisk right now, and it's in the uptrend sort of. I think it's kind of mm -hmm. wavering lately, but you could be buying it because you're trying to buy that uptrend for six months or, yeah. or a year, and then you sell it when that trend stops. Someone else might be thinking they're buying it because they're they're waiting for that day when. Everybody can buy Ozempic at a drugstore in <laughs> Delhi. That's right. And, um, right beside the gum. <laughs> and, it, and everybody in those countries, too, is, is eating, well, maybe not cheeseburgers in that country, but uh, everybody's eating eating a North American uh, diets, we'll say, in, in those countries and yeah. is getting obese and is, get, is buying their Ozempic. And that's that's a 10-year hold period, probably, we'll maybe longer. Who knows? But, and, and the other thing, too, is, I mean, a company like that and a drug like that, I, I think, is one another one of those wonderful attributes of the world getting better, yes. as it always is. I yep. think we're going to have yes. a, a future world where yes. fewer people are obese, yep. where there are fewer health issues, you know, heart and stroke issues, things like that, yep. because there's going to be more and more of these drugs that can help those people out that otherwise can't. I love that. I love that attitude because what it represents um, as investors, as people, as just individuals. Is that you need to be optimistic mm -hmm. about the world. You, you can't be an nihilist, right? It's like the re the our lives are infinitely better now than they were ten years ago. Even forget mm -hmm. two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago. Like the basic person now lives a far better life, uh, health wise, with outlooks and all of that than the king of whatever kingdom did uh, a, a millennia ago, right? And so things improve. Things improve over time. And I, and I like that attitude where, you know what, things will get better. This is an example, again, of something of an innovation or something that will greatly improve the lives of some people, 
right? Um, and it's just another thing that, hey, as humans, as much as we like to do <laughs> mean things to each other sometimes regularly, right, um, that our lives tend to improve over time. And we just don't know what that future may look like, but I think undoubtedly it will be yeah. better. It's just one of the last, and this is the markets as a whole, the markets, really the economy and and capitalism as, as a whole makes the world better over the long term because great ideas come about. Obviously, capital was invested in R&D that brought us new drugs or that is bringing us AI. Mm -hmm. Features like we're using on Zoom here, which mm -hmm. is actually going to summarize this entire conversation. <laughs> and hopefully I can post it on the uh, the website yeah. um, as a blog post. We'll see. Um, it, it just, all these little things add up and life becomes better for the future. And I think too, just think economically that if you have a workforce where there are fewer people taking sick days because of some kind of chronic illness related to obesity, there's going to be less of that in the future. And as a result, we are more productive as a society and we make more money overall and the economy does better and markets go up. And that's why they have gone up over the long term and probably will do so in the future. So I have one more question for you, Marcus, but I think it's a bit of a loaded question for you. Uh, it's in re or for us, I should say. Um, I had a client ask about a registered plan uh, withdrawal. And um, I'm gonna, let's park that for another episode because I think there's a lot of uh, it's a much deeper conversation uh, to be had mm -hmm. uh, rather than, um, you know, I think it's, it, it merits a, a conversation, uh, an episode in itself. So uh, let's park the uh, registered plan withdrawal uh, for another day. Um, and uh, yeah. I hope that you get your uh, two code at least for this weekend. And uh, if Edmonton's the same as Calgary, um, replay, get your raking done and bring the shovel out. Uh, oh, in yeah. replacement of the you got your tires going, so I'm, you're ahead of me <laughs> on that case. I got my raking done. So. It it happened so quickly last year. Remember that Halloween? <laughs> Halloween was nice. And then literally the next day, snow. And yeah. I hadn't finished the raking. So basically it was raking in the spring. But uh, uh, yeah, so um, Excellent. I was looking forward to the next episode like this we do. We'll hopefully get some other client questions in. Of course, you know, they can be posted anonymously. But uh, just, again, contact us how you how you may. And again, rate and review us on your podcast player, wherever you listen. And um, five yeah, stars. The, five, stars. Episode. five stars. Five stars. My stars, or tell us, tell us what we need to do better. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Excellent. All right, we'll chat with you next week. All right, bye. Any views discussed in this podcast are those of the presenters or any guests and not necessarily those of Canaccord Genuity Corp. Statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice, and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views expressed are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investments, objectives, financial circumstances, or general needs of any individual, organization, or institution. Investing in equities is not guaranteed, values change frequently, and past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Investors cannot invest directly in an index. Index returns do not reflect any fees, expenses, or sales charges. Please do not hesitate to contact us should you want to know more about anything discussed in this podcast. CG Wealth Management is a division of Canaccord Genuity Corp., member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Canadian Investment Regulatory Organization. Thank you.